This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. This is a very special presentation we're doing today live from the 3 Triple R performance space. And no, that wasn't a really crowd track that we played. There is actually live people in here. Just give Chris KP a big round of applause. Please. That's very sweet of you. I'm Dr. Shane. Also in the studio is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> And of course we have a very special guest today, Tim Flannery is in the house. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, everyone. Now, I realise he needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway, just in case you've been living under a rock for the last decade. Tim Flannery is an acclaimed scientist and author. He's published over 30 books, including the bestseller, The Weathermakers, which many will have heard of. In particular, I think a guy named Branson heard of it and read it. In 2005, he was named Australian Humanist of the Year, and in 2007, Australian of the Year. That same year, he co-founded and was appointed chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council. In 2011, he became a Australia's Chief Climate Commissioner, and shortly thereafter. In 2013, he founded the Australian Climate Council, which he now leads. Today on Triple R, we're going to be talking to Tim about this amazing new book that he has uh, written, Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis, uh, a book one of one of which I've, uh, I've read one book this year, I think, because I've got two kids. I didn't get to read books, and that was it. It was a great book, good read, um, and we're going to talk all about it today on Einstein and Gogo. So, Tim, I might start off first just a little bit uh, about you rather than climate. You're, you're a paleontologist, which we don't get many of these on the show. They're rare. They're almost extinct. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to paleontology? Because I understand you didn't exactly follow the standard straight-line path. No, that's, that's right. I... I, uh, I was a pretty poor scholar at school, I must say. Uh, I went to a Catholic boys' school and it was, wasn't that much fun. Um, but I was really interested in science and the outlet I found for that was the, the local museum in Melbourne, which used to be at the corner of Russell Street and yeah. Latrobe. You know, it was a great old place with these huge doors. Yeah. And so I managed to find a fossil as an eight-year-old at one of the Bayside beaches, just a little fossilised sea urchin, and um, took it in and uh, wanted to get it properly identified. And it was quite... It was really some experience. There I was in my little school uniform with my cap on, going through these gigantic doors that the blue whale through, you know, and guards there. And... Uh, they finally let me into this area. I had to walk past an Egyptian mummy, I still remember it, you know, going up to the fossil collection where they hold all of the specimens. And a guy in a white lab coat took me in and took me to a drawer and showed me the same kind of fossil and explained to me what it was and how old it was and things. And I was totally hooked after that. That was it. That was going to be it. That's what I wanted to be. And uh, so I volunteered at the museum. Uh, I went to university but um, didn't do well enough in languages or mathematics to, uh, to be able to do science. So I did an arts degree. I studied English and history, which I totally loved. Was going to be a school teacher, and uh, at the end of it, there'd been a there was a ge- boom boom on in the mineral sector, and they needed geologists. So someone said, "Why don't you go and study geology? They'll accept anyone, even an arts graduate, you know, <laughs> if you got a nice." So I did. I went to Latrobe. I went to Monash University and did a master's degree, and that was it. Then I was on my way. You're hooked. Now it's been um, some ten years now, decades since the the Weathermakers was put out, and thankfully you did do that arts degree, so you learned how to write, which yeah. is something that you know many scientists can't do. Exactly. 
especially Chris. Um, what do you believe that this book has achieved? Because it has had some pretty profound impacts over the decade. Look, I've been surprised as I've travelled the world to see how widely it's been read. It was published in 23 languages and uh, a number of quite important, I guess, well, significant people have read it. I remember when I went to the US and was in Washington uh, in 2006, having just uh, written the book, and I got a phone call in my hotel room and someone said, would you have time to come over and uh, uh, brief a sen senator from Illinois uh, over to the, you know, wherever it was, the, the Congress or whatever. And um, I said, look, I've got all these interviews to do and so I, I'm happy to speak on the phone, but I can't uh, get over and meet. And anyway, it fell through and I said, who is this guy? I said, oh, you wouldn't have heard of him. His name's Barack Obama. He's kind of new. and So I never got to meet him. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> but at least his, at least his uh, staff read it. <laughs> and uh, there were some other people, uh, quite senior people at the time in the White House who'd read it and, and uh, we, you know, I got to meet, which was great, um, including James Woolley, who was ex-head of the CIA, right of Genghis Khan, but loved the book, you know, mm -hmm. interested in yeah. the climate problem. <laughs> when I went to China a few years back with John Doyle, we made a TV series there, I got this mystery kind of invite from the Academy of Engineering Sciences in China, which is really quite a significant institution because most of the Politburo or engineers. Mm. It came through the Australian um, embassy, so they tracked me down and said, you really must go. And anyway, I turned up halfway, took some time out of the shoot to go there, and the president of the academy was there, and he's a, a nuclear physicist. But he'd, he'd assembled all of these people and wanted to have a banquet for me and just said, I really wanted to meet you because I read your book in Chinese, um, you know, a few years earlier, and it really showed, it really convinced me that this climate problem is actually real. Mm. So that was kind of, those sort of things happening were good. And I've got to meet, you know, some state premiers, as the Premier of British Columbia, actually, who put in the carbon tax in BC, yep. called me uh, to meet him when I was in Canada. And he just said, what can I do? I said, a price on carbon wouldn't hurt, you know, it'd be a good thing. So started with that. So it's, it's just, it, I think it's just cascaded through. Mm. So it has had some influence, I guess. Tim, in, uh, in 2011, you were appointed Chief Commissioner of the Climate Commission, which I personally think needs a uniform, um, but uh, <laughs> but I believe didn't have one. I was so disappointed. I was thinking black with red flashes and a yeah, I see a lot of tassels, yeah, you know, and, yeah, and, and so, some yeah. some sort of weird machine to influence the weather because everyone thought I was like Actually, doing it anyway. So that's my a good point. point. <laughs> if it was called Climate Force, it might have been still around. That's right. Um, <laughs> but that, that, at the time, that, uh, they must have seemed like a great opportunity and also a vindication of your previous work. Yeah, look, it was. I I, I did it on the basis that I would remain independent. I I, I didn't want to get involved with the politics of things, and that the job was strictly about education, was about giving information to people and engaging in a dialogue with people, so they had the, the skills that were needed to really deal with this issue on a more sophisticated level. And you know, the great thing that came out of the job was the opportunity to travel right around Australia with the other commissioners and meet ordinary Australians, and it was just fabulous really to get out to everywhere from Darwin to you know, Western Australia to rural Queensland where some of the big coal mines are, and just meet people and, and discuss the issues that they were concerned with. And I must say I came away from that with a really deep faith in human nature. I think that despite the fact there was the old rat bag in the, in the audience and we, we had to have security guards at different times and stuff, really most people, once they engage with an issue, they're, they're really capable of coming to a sensible decision on were you, it. Were you uncomfortable that there's no security guards coming into Triple R? No, no. Thank heavens we're through that, that yeah, good. period. <laughs> Just so having, um, having, having had that huge um, response from the, from the Australian people, it must have come as quite a, a shock and a surprise when only less than three years later you got a phone call uh, from the very uh, newly formed Abbott government uh, saying that this position had been terminated. I mean... So it wasn't just the position, it was the whole Climate Commission finished. Um, it was their first act, actually, on coming to government. And, 
and as you said, you know, not wanting to have an education role and not a political role. I mean, did yeah. that come as a big surprise, as a big shock? No, no. I, I, look, we, there was no secret that they, did, they didn't like us. They did, weren't interested in climate change and that they needed a symbolic act to kick off their government to indicate to their supporters that they were going to do the right thing. And we were the sacrificial victims, I think, at that point. It, it, it's one of those decisions, though, where in retrospect it must be seen strategically as somewhat foolish because they, they misinterpreted, presumably, the, the groundswell of support that you guys had. So in that sense, talk us through what happened next, because it's not that easy to, to go from something with a multi-million dollar fund mm. and to generate a multi-million dollar fund you know, a few weeks later to support it. Had That's that right. Well, you know, t- to be honest with you, and I haven't really told this whole story before, but I'm going to tell it today, um, we were really terrified that they wouldn't abolish us, but that they would try to sort of subvert us by putting a Bjorn Lomborg in charge, for example, or something else, which would have been much harder then for us to manage and deal with. But so when they did actually abolish us, we thought, right, that's a clean cut with the past. You know, we can go on and do our own thing. And we were working with a few young people who understood crowdfunding and um, the, how you go about doing that, which was just fantastic They're for always us. Young people. Yeah, well, well, they are. I know. It's, I, I couldn't have done it to save my life, you know, but, but they knew how to physically do it. Yeah. I was very apprehensive. I don't think I've ever been so nervous as the evening we got up uh, to say we were going to do this five days after being sacked. Because I thought, if we only get $10,000 or if we get something wrong, it'll speak very poorly for the commitment of Australians to this issue and it'll set us back for years. So it was a risk. But having seen, you know, travel all around Australia and met people, we knew that that there was some support out there. So anyway, we, we opened the, um, the, the crowdfunding thing at midnight, about Three minutes afterwards, we had our first donation from, I think, Joe in Western Australia. So, Joe, thank you. <laughs> it's really great. We had a ground, uh, just great support after that. And uh, today, we're, we're just, we're this organisation that employs 17 people. We're about 10 times more effective than we ever were in government because we're just much more agile. We can do you know, mm. do things better. Um, and I think we, um, we, we, we really do make sure that people understand the issue. So it's harder for politicians to lie or obfuscate when mm. you've got a public that that really has a bit more of a depth of understanding of what's happening. So I, I wanted to explore that a bit, actually, what, what the role is of the Climate Council now, because obviously with many of the international conferences, which we're, we're going to be talking about later, you know, there's, a, there's an international role, presumably, for you guys as well, not just one of local education, is that right? That's right. Well, we're, we are now building a sort of a digital platform that will help us engage at a much deeper level and produce materials that will be, I think, very valuable globally. Um, yeah. We've had some preliminary discussions with like-minded groups in other countries and we think that we can perhaps in future develop something that's a bit more global but that's still under discussion. Um, I'm, I'm going to Paris really along with our CEO just to report back to the people. Yeah. Um, we haven't been engaged with that political dialogue beyond looking, you know, and, and uh, informing people as to what's happening. But I think having done that now for several years, we need to go there and just uh, do it, uh, do that bit. So I'll be there for the final week of the conference, and uh, uh, hopefully we shall have a good outcome. Indeed. And is the um, Climate Council today still funded by Australian people? It is. Yeah, it's amazing. It's and it's one of those things that just. It show it gives you such great hope, doesn't it, for humanity that people are willing to get together and do such things. I guess crowdfunding these days isn't quite as novel as it was back then, but um, we weren't sure how it was going to go um, at all. But uh, it's turned out to be a great thing, and uh, I meet many of our supporters. People come up to me in the street and say, "Hey, you know, I support the, the council, which is just great," and they feel they're getting value for, for it, which is good. So. Mm. 
Well, we're going to take a short break, Tim. Um, so, I, you know, so you can have a drink. We've, we've all got some very special drinks here today, folks. Uh, Chris KP has got his um, purified uh, H2O. Uh, I've got three drinks on the go. The first one's tea, the second one's water, and the third one's a mystery drink. Go on three triple R. We're live today from the performance space, which is a, a big room out the back of the triple R studios, and we have Tim Flannery in as our guest, and we're talking about his new book, Atmosphere of Hope. And it's got a very shiny silver cover, which makes it very easy to find in bookstores. Now, it also Tim, increases the albedo of the planet. So lay it down on a sunny day. So you cool a, earth. It's, yeah. it's I was really talking good. to someone actually outside earlier, and we figured you could rip the cover off after you've read it and actually sit there and you know just tan yourself <laughs> on the beach. Um, now, the first round, I have to say, we let you off a bit easy. We're going to get into some detail now because yeah, yeah, uh, sure. I think we need to. Let's do a bit of a stock take. Um, it's been, as I said, a decade since Weathermakers was produced. How are we tracking now in terms of our CO2 levels compared to where we'd like to be? Sure. Look, um, over the last decade, we have been tracking the worst-case scenario projections of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So that's the, the worst possible outcome that the scientists could imagine. So that's where we are. Uh, last year, we emitted 40 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere globally. And that's a huge amount. I mean, if I could just take a second to explain how big that is. Um, you know, if you wanted to take a tenth of that back out of the atmosphere by growing trees, you'd need to plant an area the size of Australia over a 50-year period, you know, planting a New York State-sized hunk every year and keeping those trees growing uh, to be able to take on average four gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere every year. Um, so these are now figures of planetary significance when it comes to the function of ecosystems. And of course, if you did that, if you did plant trees across Australia, you'd change Earth's climate, you would warm the climate because instead of having a nice reflective surface like deserts or my book cover, you'd have a much darker cover, darker surface which absorbs sunlight and turns it into heat energy. Mm -hmm. As well as um, uh, CO2, there are other greenhouse gases that we need to be aware of. I mean, are we are we still fighting a fight against things like methane? Sure. Methane is about 20% of the, the warming. Um, when I wrote The Weathermakers, a really weird thing was happening. The methane uh, levels in the atmosphere were flattening out and then starting to drop was really still unexplained. No one knows why. They've resumed now a kind of gentle upwards trajectory. But a really interesting thing happened with methane recently. Just about four days ago, some South Korean scientists announced that they'd found a way to activate used coffee grains to capture atmospheric methane. How cool is that? <laughs> I mean, we're going to have to be drinking 20 cups a day to get a gigaton of methane out of the atmosphere, you know, all of us. Melbourne. Exactly. But Melbourne could become yeah, yeah. The, the, the core of uh, methane capture. Yeah, it's, so, it's such a great thing. I mean, I've only read the, he the headline story. I haven't gone through the detail of the science, but it's one of those kind of what I call third-way technologies that might end up with just one little bit of a difference that will add up to something big. I'm hurt. I gave up coffee four years ago, Tim. I don't know what to do now. Yeah. You're going to have to start drinking again, mate. Start drinking again. <laughs> And um, I think one thing that sometimes keeps people awake at night is the idea of um, the methane that's trapped in the permafrost and, and how we're going to um, handle that potential risk. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we've seen... Look, I should just begin by saying it's unclear what's happening at the moment. We've seen a couple of things that are concerning. One has been an, out, an outgassing of methane from a seabed in the Arctic, and that was detected a couple of years ago by Swedish researchers, quite a large-scale outgassing. There's also been some craters detected in the, on, on land yeah. uh, in, in Siberia, and those craters 
seem to uh, originate from permafrost buried 100 metres down where, where methane is, is trapped in a form of clathrates so that once that outgasses it just explodes and that's, that's it. So are we looking at, a, are they the preliminary signs of a global meltdown for permafrost? No one can say at the moment. The methane curve is just gently going upwards. Uh, very, very difficult to, to say whether that's the beginning of something significant or not. So I think until we've got more science, we've just got to say at the moment the methane is, uh, you know, there's cause for concern, but perhaps isn't the, 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 the top top of the list in terms of cause of concern. It, it, is, um, it is one of those gases that's far more prominent as a greenhouse gas than CO2 though, isn't it? Is that yeah, the over the short term it's about uh, 60 times more potent and about 20 times more potent slightly, over the medium slightly, term, slightly. which is quite a, quite a lot, exactly. <laughs> and that's why, you know, that's why we, uh, on farm, you know, people are encouraged to capture it and burn it and turn it into CO2 and generate energy mm. because you mm. avoid that initial warming impact. Yeah. I heard there's this new field called glacial archaeology where these small group a relatively small group of individuals are running around trying to predict where the melting will occur mm. because of the, the exposure of certain things from the past that are yeah, coming yeah, out. Yeah. And you have a very limited window to actually you know, find That's them right. and preserve them. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And uh, you know, it, it, the, the speed at which the glaciers are melting is horrifying. You know, we have one glacier left on the Australo-New Guinea landmass. You know, because all of Australia, Tassie and Papua New Guinea, was all one big land mm -hmm. 20,000 years ago. There's one glacier left on the highest peak in Erie and Jaya, Mount Jaya. I've seen that glacier. I've sheltered in an ice cave at its snout, and it's you know, precious beyond belief. That you know, the, the alpine habitat below it is extraordinary, very rich and beautiful. But that glacier is going to be totally melted away in the next two to three years. Right? So sure at some time, when we're all sitting there having a cup of coffee in two years' time at some cafe, the last glacier of our landmass is going to vanish, melt away totally. And uh, that's probably the first time in, uh, I don't know how long, maybe millions of years that there's been no glaciers on the Australian Australia up one continent. I mean, this brings us to our next area, which is the, the oceans of the world and, mm -hmm. and how these are essentially you know, critical to our survival and the survival of all life on Earth. Yeah. Um, let's just do a stop take on this in terms of sea level, where are we at at the moment? Because we've been hearing these numbers for quite a while and in fact one of the things that I've found disturbing is the changes in those predictions, those changes, yeah. those updates in science have been used by governments and so forth to attack the science as illegitimate, yeah, yeah. which is the opposite of what science is actually about. That's right. So, so where, where are we at with sea level at the moment? I think the first thing to say is that there's, there has been some inherent uncertainties in the historic record for sea level rise because people use tide gauges and yes. various, they you know, have to all be calibrated and they're an old technology. Only over the last 20 or so years have we had satellite monitoring and, and in fact recently we've had a really improved satellite monitoring to detect sea level rise. So the historic stuff, you know, people were always recalibrating the curve. It turns out that the curve has been steeper than we thought in the past, so the, the rate of sea level rise has been greater than we thought in the past. We're now, uh, the sea level is rising at about 3.2 millimetres a year but some big announcements have been made in the last 12 months that, that really have raised significant concern for the future and one of the most important is the announcement that the Thwaites and Pine Island glaciers in West Antarctica have now detached from the underlying bedrock mm -hmm. uh, and that, that means that mechanically they're unstable, there's nothing holding them back so they will melt, they have to melt, there's nothing, nothing can happen about that. Um, they have enough water frozen in them to raise global sea levels by about a metre. 
The question is how fast will they melt? And NASA has had a go at, at answering that very recently. They think it's about a century on the scale of a century. So we're looking at that that's an irreversible change. And when we talked about the methane, I mean, that's concerning, but I think the, the Thwaites and Pine Island glaciers, which is irreversible, is a much greater concern. We now know we have to plan for a metre sea level rise. It's still a bit uncertain as to how long that'll take. But that's a, that's a big, big thing. The, the one that I have to say frightens a little bit crap out of me, Tim, and most of this stuff does, to be honest, yeah, yeah. is the, the effect that having more CO2 does in terms of acidity of the oceans. Yeah. Are we starting to see the effects of that? Because I know that there were some great studies around various islands in Europe where they looked at acidity levels on one side of the island versus the other, just natural variations, yeah, right. and certain marine creatures could only live on one side, you know, a few right. kilometres away. Yeah. Are we seeing those effects already? We absolutely are. And, you know, the, the great... Well, the good thing about ocean acidification from a scientific point of view is that it's a, we have living concrete examples, as you mentioned, of different acidity levels and what they do to different organisms. And we see very clearly that whole classes of organisms simply can't survive if the acidity uh, increases just slightly. And we've already shifted acidity globally uh, from 8.1 on the pH scale... 8.2 to 8.1 on the pH scale. That's about a 30% increase in acidity. Um, and... I'm, I guess that's the big sleeper for me. It's an area that really worries me. We're already seeing impacts. In the North Pacific, there's been catastrophic failure of uh, uh, oyster spat recruitment in some of the big fisheries up there uh, for several years now, and it's due to ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. You know, up there, the water's naturally acid at depth, and it's, it's kind of getting acid on the top layer because of the, all the stuff coming in from the atmosphere, the CO2 from the atmosphere. So it's only a little sandwich of, of reasonable water for these oysters to survive. And... Um, you know, once the kelp stop absorbing CO2 overnight, then the acidity builds up and it kills the larval spat. So that's affecting an industry. The industry's had a quick fix for that, by the way. They just stop taking water in overnight and bring it the next morning once the, once the seaweed starts growing again and absorbing the CO2. But for all of the creatures that exist there naturally, it's a catastrophe. Mm. What about tropical reefs, Tim? Is, is, is there any hope for the Great Barrier Reef? I've got to be realistic here, and I, um, I don't want to be a, a kind of merchant of doom, which I'm not, naturally. A book's called Atmosphere of Hope. But, but the fact is there's enough warming built in to the system now to destroy the Great Barrier Reef pretty much. You know, one and a half degrees of warming is now pretty much unavoidable, and that's the level where the scientists say we'll start seeing very big impacts on the reef. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things, you hope that you pray the science is wrong. But um, at least as it looks now, as of mid-2015, um, it's one of those areas that's going to... It's, it's and what, what sort of timeline are we talking about? Well, it's, it's sometime in the next 50 years we're going to see wow. you know, the, that, that um, one and a half degrees at the moment. Cause, you know, and that's because of the gas already in the air. So yes. even if we yes. stopped emitting yeah. greenhouse gases today, like dead, yeah. um, we'd still see another half degree of warming above the 0.9 we've already experienced. Let's jump back on the land, because yeah. the ocean stuff really does mess with me. It worries me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not that the others doesn't. Um, now, plants breathe CO2. We all know that. Um, so you've got areas like the Amazon rainforest. I mean, a, a simple connection here would be that more CO2 means that these forests fare better. I, is that correct, though? Look, tropical trees are growing at a faster rate uh, than previously. 
but that's only one part of the equation. Um, another thing that happens as the, C as the CO2 becomes more abundant is that those tropical plants need to keep the little holes in their leaves called stomata open for less and less time in order to get the CO2 they want. That means they have less moisture escaping into the atmosphere. And some of the tropical forests like the Amazon, are very they make their own rain. They're dependent on that moisture from their own leaves to create the clouds and make their own rain. So in the Amazon basin, 80% of the rainfall is made by the trees themselves. So as you start changing that, you start getting less rain and that can have a big impact. So the eastern Amazon is a great example. I mean, boy, they're, they're in trouble there. The city of Sao Paulo has had this historic drought where their water supplies uh, dams were down to, down to about 5% of their capacity. You know, that was having really big impacts. So and it's got an ongoing water crisis in the eastern Amazon. Western Amazon, it's not quite as clear. The science is still a bit, uh, a bit less certain because we're dealing with very complicated systems here. But eastern Amazon, we can already see it. And, and what does it mean for crops? I mean, uh, what is uh, the changes in our global atmosphere going to mean um, in terms of our capacity to feed the growing well, population? About eight months ago now, the China Daily, which is, you know, the organ for the Communist Party to just put their stuff out, ran a front-page uh, story which said um, global warming threatens food security in Asia. Right? And that was... and. They had picked up on a, a study, uh, there's a number of studies, but number one particularly, which looked at the impact of CO2, increasing CO2 levels on rice, wheat and various other crops. And those crops will still grow quite well when you elevate the CO2 levels, artificially, like in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. But what happens is there's no additional nutrients for those plants, so the protein a content of those those things goes down. So, you know, I think rice was like down by eight percent by the you know in terms of protein content compared by twenty fifty compared with what we see today. And that's the difference of, of life and death for people who are dependent on rice for to survive. So that this is the you know, what the Chinese are worried about is that these increasing elevating levels of CO2 will threaten food security right throughout, well, throughout the world, but particularly in South and East Asia where there's such a heavy dependency on grains. Mm -hmm. So that, that is an extraordinary problem in itself, I think, uh, forgetting all the other bits. Now, we, we, we talk a lot about climate, but I'd just like to zoom in for a bit to, to weather, which are, the mm -hmm. two are often confused, I think, and yeah. in fact, uh, you know, many of the, you know, geez, it's, uh, it's cold this year, you know, what are these people talking about, you you get these sorts of yeah. comments every now and then. Um, but I noticed the other day um, something that I'd never seen before, and this relates to this issue about hurricanes, or you know, as we like to call them down here, yeah. cyclones, um, and this idea that, first of all, there were comments about we'd get more, and mm -hmm. I think that was updated to they would be more intense. So the other day I saw a picture, a, a, a satellite image, that showed three Category 4 hurricanes yeah. In a line yeah. running across across um, the Atlantic, I think they were. That's it might have been Pacific. Um, I mean, this seems extraordinary that uh, this has been further away for the yeah. first time ever. Is is this starting to happen now? Is this the first indication that we're getting this intensification of hurricanes? Yeah, look, I should explain that the, the hurricane projections was was one of, I think, two areas in the book that I had to update significantly uh, compared with the, what was written in the weather makers because in 2005, people had noticed an uptick in the frequency and intensity of hurricanes in the North Atlantic. And hur hurricanes are fairly rare events, so you've got, you know, it, it's hard to predict. You've got to have a long time series to predict w what's happening. But they had enough evidence in the North Atlantic that they're increasing in number. So some scientists said, well, that's a fairly clear indication that hurricanes are going to increase globally. 
There was others who disagreed with them. It turns out that the people who disagreed were right. The number of hurricanes isn't increasing, but the intensity of those that do form is increasing. So two things. What you've got to have the right conditions to form a hurricane, and they're very specific conditions that mm-hmm. that that haven't changed as the world has warmed or changed in ways that have kept things roughly in the same place. But once they do form, it's that extra heat in the ocean that's the fuel for the hurricane, and that's really powering them up to Category 4 and 5 much more commonly than we saw previously. And and what about when we look at things like rainfall? Are we seeing changes in rainfall patterns? Because obviously as we we heat the globe and we change the reflectivity of the planet overall with the difference in clouds and so forth, I mean, presumably this is very complicated, but are there, you know, whether up or down, changes that we're seeing now in rainfall? There's some astonishing changes. Um, And two of the best documented are in Australia and in the western US. I mean, the, the drought in California at the moment is beyond anything anyone's ever seen in that country. And they've got records there going back 500 years to the old Spanish settlement times, as well as proxy records from tree rings and stuff that go back a lot further. And they're really concerned now that they're going to see some mega droughts, some droughts of decades long, which no one has ever seen before, you know, in the historic record, but have occurred prehistorically in that area. Uh, In Australia, we've seen really big changes. I mean, southern and eastern Australia is losing rainfall. Northwestern Australia is gaining rainfall. Uh, and, and that will have an impact. But it, there's other things than just rainfall. It's, quite, it's kind of complicated. If you're a farmer, rainfall is one thing, but when it falls is really important. Mm-hmm. Is it winter rainfall that soaks into the soil and gives you a bit of runoff, or is it summer rainfall that comes in a big burst and runs off and just fills your dams with sheep shit? You know, that's one, <laughs> which, I mean, it's really different things. What's happening in the soil? Is the soil so warm that the plants are transpiring any moisture that actually reaches the soil, or are they in a more dormant state, you know, mm-hmm. state where they where the, uh, the soils are cooler and the moisture can penetrate. So as the warming continues, we've seen an increase in rainfall intensity, which is really noticeable in uh, places like Australia and the US. So instead of gentle winter rains, we're getting big bursts that run off. Um, we're getting hotter soils, so our catchments aren't getting as much runoff from the rain that does fall as, as it was in times past. And of course, changing rainfall itself. Now we're going to take a short break folks uh, We're live from the Triple R Performance Space today We have an audience that is about to cheer in a moment When I remind them that Liv is here doing our Twitter feed Indeed. And she tells me we have slightly uh, more than a certain uh, Estevez uh, brother now, uh, to change his name. Anyway, um, we are talking to Tim Flannery. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple That applause is for our guest, Tim Flannery, who's in the house. And we are talking about his new book today, Atmosphere of Hope, which has a very silver cover, very easy to find in bookstores if you're interested. Um, Tim, the one part we haven't touched on a lot, and I, I kind of don't care because we're an apex predator and you know we've infested this planet, but human, human health is, is a, 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 a great risk at the moment with regards to some of the things that we're doing. Let's talk, for example, about coal. How, and, and I know Dr. Crystal's a big fan of coal. She thinks coal is amazing. Coal is amazing. It's amazing. Um, and she started that Twitter um, hashtag, I think is the right term, Dr. Crystal, last week after she had a little moment in the studio where she freaked out. <laughs> How bad is coal for our health overall? Well, it's, it's a major killer. 
it's a major killer globally. Um, in a place like northern China, where the air quality is terrible, um, you know, we've, I think it's about five and a half years has been taken off average life expectancy. That's, and that's before the cancer epidemic that's going to come, you know, in, in, in f- future years, just from uh, the, other, the other impacts. Places like the Latrobe Valley have, have decreased longevity again because of the coal. And, you know, the coal-fired power plants, those old antique polluting plants that are running down there at the moment, full tilt, because there's no carbon price, you can taste the result in the air, you know, and people are aware of it. And um, it, it's a serious... I, I think you know, I can't overstate how serious it is. I mean, the reason the US is regulating the coal sector now is, th- is those... The health impacts, they are huge, mm. you know, as well as climate change, but the, the, the focus of the regulation is on improving health. And do you have any idea about the health impacts of other um, current energy sources around oil and gas? I mean, are they... Well, you know, diesel is a, is a, is a bit of a problem. Any, any, any time you burn fossil fuels and you create little particles... You know, you're endangering people, so especially if they're down at the 2.5 micron size, they're the things that get right into our systems and, and stay there. Um, so burning burning stuff, you know, and letting people be exposed to the fumes is not a good idea. Um, solar, of course, you know, as far as we know, nothing. <laughs> wind, people say they um, have some impacts from hearing wind, some people, but um, all of the studies have shown really that it's... Um, that, that uh, those are anxiety-related things rather than, as far as we can tell, any um, yeah. uh, physical impact. But, you know, it's worth continuing to study these things. I think that's a fair enough call. Yeah. But if you compare wind and coal, my, there is, you know, we know coal kills. It kills thousands, probably millions of people around the world every year. Mm. You know, wind, people get annoyed by it, get anxious about it, but, you know, it's not like on the same scale. Mm. I think you just have to ask the people of Morwell about um, yeah. how uh, anxious yeah. <laughs> it makes them having a coal mine in their backyard. Well, exactly, and breathing that stuff all the time. It's, uh, it's, it's really tough, and we don't do a good job of monitoring those emissions in Australia. We should be at least doing a better job of that and warning people that this is actually dangerous, and um, you know, at these levels, stay inside, and whatever, we, we've got a bit of a lackadaisical system, I think. I, do you think that, I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment around um, cutting red tape, um, yeah. and do you think that the environmental protections are suffering from that uh, prevailing attitude at the moment, in terms of having less regulation rather than more? I think governments would like to have less regulation and probably less awareness of, of some of this stuff, because some of the things are hard to solve, you know. Um, but but as, a, as a population, we need more safeguards rather than less. You know, we can, we can see the, the problems, the health issues and the, the big environmental issues, and we, we need to get down and solve them. Yeah. Tim, if we, if we look at the sort of three common options, especially here that we see in Australia, leaving out the renewables for a moment, like coal, oil and gas. Mm. I mean, how do these three compare? I mean, I, I have the sort of impression that coal is by far the worst, but when you hear about how some of the others are pulled out of the ground and so yeah. forth, I suspect there's problems there too. Look, there is a uh, coal is a really a bad source of pollution for a simple reason, which is that coal is a sponge in the ground. So anything that travels through the groundwater, uh, it, it gets into the coal and it stays there. So you know, uh, one good example is uranium. You know, the, those coal-fired power plants up in northern South Australia, there and Port Augusta, they're the largest single point source of radiation in the country. I mean, we've got the biggest uranium mine in the world just north of them, but it doesn't compare because you know the, the, the coal concentrates the radiation that comes in in the groundwater. 
stored the uranium when you burn it of course it escapes along with um, mercury you know coal coal produces about half the mercury that uh, between a third and a half of the mercury that gets into the food chain and you know, so that you know, the reason we recommend women, pregnant women don't eat fish is that mercury is really dangerous mm. um, there's a whole lot of other metals of sulfur and a whole lot of dangerous stuff that's in coal mm. so in addition to the little particles and in addition to what it does to the atmosphere um, all of those other pollutants are, are major sources now, in terms of energy production and the economics of it you know, even if we don't take into account all the health effects and so forth how do we track at the moment in terms of something like solar is is it actually becoming economically viable as a technology compared to things like coal and oil and gas or are we still you know remember the you know the days even not just a few years back where people just said it's a really expensive technology it's not going to fly where where are we at now well solar pv you know the photovoltaics they have decreased in cost by 10 percent a year for the last 30 years unbelievable record but for 28 of those years they probably weren't cost competitive you know because they started at a very very expensive rate but i was just looking two weeks ago at a power purchase agreement in texas of all places you know morris newman thinks texas is wonderful well it is to some extent because the city of austin in texas did a power purchase agreement with a solar farm at a cost for their electricity of four cents a kilowatt hour. Mm. Now, the, when I looked at those power purchase agreements in Texas, even a few months earlier, they were at the six cent level. So solar is just cutting costs like crazy. They are getting the market first. I mean, for three years in a row, we've seen investments in renewables trump investment in fossil fuel technologies. So we're winning. The problem is, at the moment, there are 300 antique coal-fired power plants around the world. We need to shut down all at about the 1,000 megawatt scale, all huge. You know, and we, you know, it'd be lovely to see them all shut down, but if we can't shut them down in Australia, what is the chances that an India or a South Africa could shut them down? And if, and if we look at the coal that we've got in the ground that we can dig up and burn at will, which we're doing at the moment, and we look at this goal of staying below 2 degrees Celsius in terms of warming, what, what does that goal mean in terms of us digging up and burning this stuff? I mean, do we have to stop now or can we burn half of it? Where are we at? We've, got to, we've got to leave the lion's share of it in the ground up above 80% um, of, of it in the ground. Uh, you know, if you look at the fossil fuels as a whole, um, in terms of their value, stock market value for companies, the reserve value, um, there's, there's enough fossil fuel there to generate about 3,000 gigatons of CO2, whereas um, the carbon budget, if we want to have a 75% chance of staying below 2 degrees, is, is kind of around about 600 to 700 you know, gigatons. So there's more than enough fossil fuel already valued on the stock market and reflected in the value of companies to cook the planet several times, several over. times over. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. We're interviewing Tim Flannery today live from the 3 R performance space here on Einstein and GoGo. Everyone's freaking out a bit at this point, Tim, so we're going to play some, <laughs> play some bark for them just to calm them down, just to calm them down, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a third way, one of the big parts of your book, yeah. and how we might be able to get around this global catastrophe that's coming in, coming like a freight train right at their face. So it's stay calm. It is called atmosphere hope. Stick atmosphere with hope. It. <laughs> the hope is in slightly smaller font, though. I should say to the people. <laughs> uh, you are listening to Three Jabbar. We've got a rowdy pack of people in the studio uh, today, folks, because we're doing a live show from the performance space here at Triple R with Tim Flannery, and I've been trying to get them to boo and hiss Chris KP, but they haven't done it. Can you do it now? Thank <laughs> you. 
I didn't believe that. <laughs> now, uh, it's been a sombre start to the show, or three quarters to it. We're going to now move into the atmosphere of hope. Right. Tim, uh, consequently, uh, you gave the word hope much larger font. I lied before. The word hope is very large on the front of this book. Tim, you, you think there is a way around this. Give us some, yeah. uh, some ideas. We're going to keep pumping yeah. CO2 out. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. What are we going to do to halt this problem or at least pair it back to below two degrees of warming? There's three reasons I'm really hopeful for this. The first is that people now, by and large, see climate change as a lived experience. We've all experienced the heat waves and stuff, and people increasingly understand what's going on. The people want action. Our government still doesn't want action, but the people want action. That is a huge step forward. Um, that's one. The second one is that you know the, the International Energy Agency introduced the, or released these figures earlier in the year saying that for the first time at the global level, the use of fossil fuels and the emissions coming from them has decoupled from economic growth. First time in 40 years they've seen that. And that came about because of all of the little things that we've all been doing, you know, changing the light globes, riding a bike rather than take a car, insulating the house, you know, all of that stuff, putting PV on the roof. All of those billions of actions have now added up to this massive decoupling. And that is just the most hopeful thing we've ever seen. If we see that in the future, it's come many years before I thought it would, and it's really buying us time. We're still committed to two degrees, in my view, or more, and the third cause for hope is that we can, I think, we can actually claw that back. There's a whole series of technologies out there. The coffee grounds were just one of them. <laughs> there's a whole, some of them are really work at a very large scale that can allow us to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale and avoid the worst consequences of the warming. Those technologies are just, I mean, they're not even on people's horizons. I had to invent a name for them in the book, you know, the third-way technologies. Mm. But they're going to be a huge part of our future. And we're not talking about some of these, and I have to say, I've been fascinated by them as they've come out, but some of these crazy geoengineering solutions here, are we? I mean, no, these are all technologies that strengthen Earth's own capacity to self-regulate and create a stable environment for us all. So we either kind of enhance it using our own means or help the natural system uh, to do a better job. So we're talking about yanking the CO2 out of the atmosphere in yeah, this case as opposed right. to all the other things we're talking well, about. Exactly, and one big stream in that, that technology is the biological stream. And I mean, that's fantastic because we've got a free energy source. It's called the sun. Yeah. We've got a free capture mechanism called plants, which actually mm. create the earth. So we can do some amazing things. I mean, reforestation is one of them. Using biochar is another. Oddly enough, some of the things that are being um, funded through the current Abbott government direct action policy actually aren't emissions reduction at all. They're all about third-way technologies. They're changing farm management, capturing methane, that sort of stuff that, you know, uh, lets you... Um, uh, draw some CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, but then there's um, uh, this offshore huge opportunity. So seaweed farming, you know, there's one desktop proposal that said if we could just cover 9% of the world's ocean in seaweed farms, we'd deal with ocean acidification and we'd draw down all of the CO2 that humanity puts up in any one year currently. Right. And I, I, I thought, that's fantastic. And then went to the calculations and said, well, how much is 9% of the world's ocean? <laughs> Four and a half times the area of Australia. But it's still, the fact that seaweed grows 30 to 60 times faster than land-based plants, it's incredibly good at capturing CO2. You buffer the ocean so you can 
grow enough protein to feed the world under those 9% of seaweed farms. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a huge opportunity there. Now, it's an over-the-horizon one. We don't know exactly how to do it. We know how to capture the CO2 maybe, but we don't know where to put it at that scale. There's, there's some options there. But um, I, I think that what we're seeing in these third-way technologies is a situation analogous to where wind and solar were in the 1970s, when these were experimental technologies that were... The electricity they produced was thousands of times more expensive than conventional electricity, and you know, it's taken us 30 years to get them to market, to scale. Um, third-way technology is going to be a bit the same. We don't know which ones are going to win out, but by 2050, I think they'll be pulling out at least 40% of the emissions we put up in any one year currently. Wow. So you've touched on two of the of the major uh, issues around these technologies, scale mm-hmm. and storage. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about how would these technologies be scaled up, and then yeah, sure. how do you actually store mm. safely all that carbon? That's right. Well, look, there are limits to the scale, the scalability of particularly the biological pathways because they depend on Earth's ecosystems, and Earth's ecosystems are already under stress. So we can enhance them to some degree, we can reforest, we can maybe plant seaweed, although that's much more speculative, the ocean stuff. But we're going to need some other technologies as well. And if you look at what are called the chemical pathways, and people don't like chemicals, but just put that aside for a second. Everything's made of chemicals. Exactly, thank you. (laughs) Among those, the chemical pathways are things like carbon-negative concrete. So, you know, we concrete... The concrete industry emits about seven gigatons of CO2 a year globally at the moment. So, concrete negative, uh, sorry, carbon negative concrete actually doesn't absorb, it doesn't emit any CO2 while it's being made, but when, as it's setting, it draws CO2 into its structure. So, you know, the savings there are huge. Um, you can imagine that being operating on the gigaton scale into the future. Now, that concrete already exists, but people are reluctant to use it, particularly for things like the Sydney Harbour Bridge or whatever big things you're going to build, because it hasn't got a long track record, right? And you don't want to build with a material without a track record. But there are lots of uses for concrete that are low risk that our government could be getting behind to develop that industry to scale and give it some track record. Mm. That's important. Another one's olivine-based rocks, like serpentinites, very abundant in Australia. As they weather, they absorb CO2. And there's proposals out there to, to dig up some of that rock and crush it and lay it on beaches, for example, where it'll be agitated as grains and absorb lots of CO2. So if you take six gigatons of um, of those serpentinite rocks, you can capture about three and a bit gigatons of, of, of CO2 you know, by crushing it. There's a company called Debigium in um, the Netherlands that makes roof paint. They want to use serpentinite rock sand grains in the roof paint so you can capture the CO2 on your roofs. Yeah, there's lots of things. Now, I, I know nothing about chemistry, mm. so uh, I had to look this up, but um, the uh, CO2, uh, CO2 has a melting temperature of 56.6 degrees, apparently. I can't verify that, but um, storage in Antarctica, yeah. where the temperature is somewhere between minus 60 and minus yeah. 90 degrees, how does that work? Well, people people who study other planets notice that Mars has ice caps made of CO2, right? They said, could we do that on Earth? Turns out the average temperature across the Antarctic ice caps is minus 57 degrees, um, but the the freezing point of CO2 is minus 78.5. Now, sometimes it gets down to minus 90 over Antarctica, and at that time it does snow CO2, you know, when temperatures are that low. It's just that the CO2 doesn't get buried, and it just it just sublimates back into the atmosphere when it warms. So the idea is, why don't we get some chiller boxes, big chiller boxes, power them using wind power, which already exists in Antarctica, all of the stations down there. Heaps of wind those. down there. Exactly, heaps of wind. You need about half the installed wind energy in Germany, it turns out, to capture a gigaton of carbon as carb CO2 snow and then bury it in the ice cap 
and, and that's a storage solution. So again, it's a desktop study. There's lots we've got to learn about this. We've got to think through the problem, but the options are there. And I think as 2050 gets closer and as two degrees gets closer, we might start thinking much more seriously about those issues. But we need to start planning now. Wind and solar teach us that there's no time to lose in developing these technologies. They also teach us, incidentally, that those, those countries that grab the opportunity, the people that grab the opportunity, will be riding a huge tech boom into the future, bigger than wind and solar, because it's going to be so deep, it's going to cover everything, all from coffee grounds to mm. CO2, to making carbon fibres. I don't know whether you saw that incredible announcement two weeks ago. People can now make carbon fibres using atmospheric CO2 directly at one-tenth the cost of current production methods. Mm. Unbelievable. So you know, carbon nanofibres are going to be huge in our future, everything from aircraft to you know, wherever you need light-strong material. Yeah. Um, capturing them, turning a problem into the solution there is big. So, look, not, notwithstanding that we accept that we're probably going to get two degrees um, and everything else and it's incredibly complicated to what extent does human population growth have an impact on this whole problem well human population growth is a multiplier right so so if you've got the technology doesn't change and you just have more people the problem increases Mm. Um, we know how to fix human population growth you've you've got to empower women economically and as individuals in developing countries it's a problem we know how to solve i don't know why we're not getting out there trying to solve it but uh, we, we need to do that at a greater scale. But I, I'm not a, a fan of asking anyone to get off, you know, get off the planet to like, so lower the problem and leave that one. We've got to change the technology. So we've got to have the will to act yeah. and we've got to have the options available to us yes. to make that action effective. Well, Tim, it's been absolutely fabulous having you on the show today and we wish you all the best with your new book and hopefully it will have an even greater impact than your last one did. Having read it, um, as I say, only book I've read so far this year, although I'm halfway through the Martian. Got right. it. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is an astounding book in terms of the level of detail you put in there and um, your work has been an inspiration to many people. Keep it up. Thanks so much for being our guest on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Tim Flannery today in conversation live from the Triple R Performance Space. A massive thank you to all the volunteers and support staff here at Triple R, Brett, Brian, Archie, Jed, Lauren, Libby, Paul and Andrew. Thank you to our technology partners, Avid and KV2, for the monitoring and the sound in the performance space that we enjoy here. Big thank you to Tim and to my team, Dr Crystal and Chris KP. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone who's turned up today to see this live performance. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.